So last week, we began by looking at the Bible as a whole, and we talked about how the Bible, uh, the Bible is 66 books, two testaments, 1,200 or so chapters, but within that is one story, one story about, uh, about a God whose nature is to be in relationship, and that when humans have sinned, is on the move through ordinary people, organized in community, to redeem the world in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? We talked more about that last week. And then we talked about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what is called the prologue. And in those first 11 chapters, we see the, 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 condi- the, we see the human condition laid bare. We say how humanity, each one of us, was created in the image of God. Male and female, we bear within us that divine spark, that divine image, that divine connection that each of us are made in the image of God. But then we also find that humanity had free will. And our earliest ancestors used that free will uh, not to, to disobey God. God said, I gave you one thing, and they failed. And there, through their, their disobedience, through the pride that led to unbelief, and the unbelief that led to sin, the sin that leads to death, we, we see the human condition. And the rest of that, those 11 chapters tells us about that human condition as wickedness multiplies throughout the world. And yet we see that God is faithful, that God is, ju- God is righteous and judges, but God's judgment is, com- is, is paired with mercy. And so we see when people sin, there is the destruction of the flood, but also the saving of a righteous one named Noah. And the promise, the covenant with Noah, that God would never again blot out humanity by a flood. And so what we see is the stage is set. The players are ready to go. And when we open Genesis 12, and that's where we're going to begin today, we begin our story. Now I'm going to move a little quicker than last week because we've got so many more chapters. So you'll have to flip quickly. Uh, to follow me, and I'll skip several chapters, and I'll try to give you tent posts while I'll say, now I'm on chapter 38, and you'll be like, wait, I, you're on 22. Uh, but we're going to try to move quickly tonight. The players are set, and the players, when we start, we see on the stage one man. His name is Abram. The story of chapter 11 builds up to him. Abram is semi, probably semi-nomadic, and that means he doesn't have a permanent home or permanent land, but he lives in tents and he moves. Now when we say move, we don't move, move every night, he might move every few years. But uh, there are people today in the world, they're called Bedouins that live in the, in the Middle East. They, are, they, they live a similar lifestyle. I wouldn't want to draw the parallel too exhaustively, uh, but they are people that are on the move. And so there Abram comes. He is, a prob- he is a polytheist. That's a fancy word. It means that he worships many gods. He is not at this point a worshiper of God, the God we know, the God who is known in Scripture as Yahweh. Uh, and, but yet God comes to this polytheist, this descendant that is tracked meticulously. Have you noticed that? I know some of you have said, well, I just can't get past all the begats or the son of. There's all these names. I can't pronounce them. I'll give you some good news. Nobody really knows how to pronounce Hebrew, so just give it your best shot. I'm just going to offer that to you. 
uh, that, that, that we have to guess what it looks like and what it sounded like. So you speak boldly on names. And God comes and he says to him, Now go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is really interesting, isn't it? One, we see there that in Abram, we see a change of religious belief. But we also see a change in how the ancient peoples viewed God. God typically, as I understand the ancient world, was a God of places, things, and locations. So they would have shrines on hilltops, and on that hilltop, and that hilltop alone, they would worship a certain God. Another hilltop, there would be a shrine to a different God. And so gods were aligned with places, but very clearly here. And I, and I mentioned last week that so much of those first 11 chapters, I, I think, speaks into their context in a way that is to say that the God of Israel, that one true living God, is different. Different. And what he's saying here is, to someone whose life is moving from place to place, I am your God. So when you move... Are you going to have a different God there? No. When you go up that hill, will it be a different God than this hill? No. And so we see a shift of the idea of God, of a God of places, to a God whose primary relationship is not with places or things, but with people. That's a huge transition. And for those of you who have been, have been Christians for a while, and, 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 and those of you who understand a lot of Christian theology, that is at the very foundation of Christian theology, that we have a God whose primary desire is to be in relationship with people more than be over places and things. And so, and but then when God calls Abram, something else for us to remember is God's calling is not to benefit Abram. Now he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? But what does the rest say? Comma, so that you will be a blessing. Later, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And that sounds great, too. Like an early version of prosperity gospel preaching, which is no gospel at all. But he says there, but he says then, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, the benefit of Abram's calling is primary beneficiary is really not Abram. This is not a calling about Abram. It is a calling of Abram through Abram for the benefit of all the families of the earth. The blessing and the acceptance that you and I have by God comes through this blessing that says, because of Abram, the world will be blessed. And so in verse 4, three dramatic, critical, world-changing words. So Abram went. So Abram went. The pattern of the life of Abram, and we're going to talk about that. So what we see here is Abram is the beginning. He is the beginning and the story, the structure of the remainder of the book of Genesis. 
is it is structured not by stories and decades and centuries, but by people. And so you have the story of the descendants, and it's marked in there. This is the story of the descendants of, of so-and-so. Uh, so this is the story of Abram. Next will be uh, the, story, uh, uh, the story of Jacob. You'll notice we'll miss Isaac, and I'll talk about that for a minute later. Uh, then the story of the descendants of Jacob, that is Joseph, and intermingled are the stories of the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Ishmael, and I'll talk about these people in a minute. But what we see here is the story of Abram is the story of a man who had faith imperfectly. Because each of these figures, you're going to find they are real people. These are not people larger than life. These are not people who, um, who are perfect. These are not people who have it all figured out. These are ordinary people like you and me, people with, uh, great, uh, who interlace great faith with great doubt. Here's what I mean. So in, in, a, in a little while, we see that he continues to move. But then in chapter 15, we see the covenant is made. He says, I uh, will make of you. Did you notice, I, before we talk about the covenant, let me, let me mention something to you really quickly. How many of you noted when he says, I will make of you a great nation? He says this, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, to a man who does not have children. And he's old. <laughs> he's maybe a hundred. There's nobody in here who's a hundred, right? Some of, some of you are... But a but hundred... How many of you plan to have children when you're a hundred? Seventy-five. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, right. How many of you plan to have children a hundred? Or maybe for women, how many of you at eighty? I read a story last week about there's a woman in India, I think is it 72, yeah. who, who, who had a child and twins, because why not? Uh, but yet nobody has had children at 80. And he says this. So what happens is we find Abram goes and he believes this. But see, this is, this is interesting. This is like what we do, right? He says, God's going to give me children, therefore I have to make this happen myself. So what does he do? He says, well, I've got to make God's promise happen. I've got to do my part. God gave me the promise, and I'm going to take care of it. So what does he do? He first adopts a man named uh, Eleazar of Damascus, a slave, and adopts him as his son. And so when he dies, his property and everything can pass on to someone, uh, this Eleazar. And he says, and Abram says, uh, no, this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue, your own biological children, should be your heir. Look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And then he said, so shall his descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord. And we'd be like, this worked. And then he says, okay, well, this is kind of like a man, I guess. He says, well, then clearly the problem I have is not me, it's my wife. And in evidence that I'm pretty sure a man wrote the book of Genesis, I don't know, I, I can't guarantee who, but a man, I'm sure, apparently it's Abram's wife who has the idea, why don't you get a different wife and have a child by her? Not really sure I know many women who would suggest that, but, uh, but, but it happens. And so he has another child, their name is Ishmael. 
And he says, look, I've got a child. And God says, no, do you not understand? Are we not clicking here? You and Sarah will have a child. And it says that Sarah laughed. Later, denies Sarah laughed, but God said, yes, you did. And so God provides for him, and he believes, but then he thinks he's got to make it happen. And how often does that happen? All the time. All the time. <laughs> so in chapter 15, though, what we see is God making a covenant. Covenant is one of the great words of the Bible. We'll talk about two great words of the Bible tonight, covenant and law. Covenant is a promise. Covenant is a connection. In some ways, it's like a contract. But contracts are a connection of things. For example, about a year, and a little, almost two years ago, I, I can't believe it's been that long, but almost two years ago I bought a new car. And uh, in 72 short months, I will own it outright. <laughs> and I made a promise, right? They made a promise. In return for a certain amount of money every month for the next six years, plus the trade-in of my old Accord, uh, I will have this brand-new Honda CRV. It's a great vehicle, most practical vehicle I've ever owned. Um, and, and so we made a promise, right? Well, what happens if I break the promise? What's going to happen if I stop making the payments? They're going to come and they're going to take my CRV away and I'll be in real trouble, right? So I make the payments. They give me the car. But a covenant is not like that. So that was a this for that, right? A covenant doesn't, isn't, a, isn't a thing about things. It's about people. A covenant is a promise that I, my existence is connected with your existence. And so it can be made between equals, but more often made between someone who is stronger and weaker. The historic terms are suzerain and vassal. And so they'll talk about the promises, what the, what the more powerful party will do. And then we'll talk about the penalties and curses if you break the covenant. And we see in chapter 15 kind of that structure. Uh, God promises that, uh, that, I, that I will give you multiple descendants. And I will use you to bless the nations. And he says, uh, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Also promises them land. It says, I'm going to give you all these things. And then as a way of sealing the covenant, what happens is they would take animals and they would cut them in half, slaughter them, and scatter the, 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 the dead pieces on the ground. And then the weaker party would walk in the midst of these, signifying, so be it to me, may it happen to me what has happened to these animals, may I be cut to pieces if I break this covenant. That's serious business. But what happens in chapter 15? It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon them and and then later when it was dark it says a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces so pay attention who walked between the dead animal pieces to say may it be to me as with these animals who was it god. it was god and god says if this covenant is broken i will pay the penalty. There's some powerful imagery there, isn't there? There's some powerful stuff there. 
that God takes the penalties, which are supposed to be for the weaker person, right? But then puts them on himself. Puts them on himself. And so eventually, um, they have children. A child named Isaac. Isaac is given to, uh, given to Abram and Sarah. Abram is now changed his name to Abraham. Abraham meaning the father of many nations. Isaac is surprisingly unprominent in Genesis. There's not much said about him other than about his wife and his descendants. And so let's talk about his descendants. There are twins born to Isaac and his wife Rebekah. One is named Jacob and one is named Esau. I think I've mentioned before here and other places that when the Bible talks about two sons, are good things going to happen or are bad things going to happen? <laughs> bad things are going to happen. So Jacob and Esau comes out. Esau is an unusual figure. He comes out completely covered in red hair and his name Esau. But right on his heels, just a minute, seconds later, comes the younger of the twins, Jacob. And there's something interesting about him. He's coming out literally holding on to the heel of the older twin, desperately trying to get out first. In the ancient world, there was the practice that the oldest child got all the benefits. And so Jacob's name is a word that means heel grabber, the supplanter. He's the heel grabber. And that gives you a lot of information about Jacob's life. In the ancient world, they believed names meant destiny. And so uh, Jacob's an interesting guy. He is not a man of tremendous faith. Later we find that Esau is Isaac's favorite. I, Esau is a real manly man, I suppose you could say. He is a hunter, a gatherer, a man who likes to be outdoors. Jacob is more of an indoor kind of guy, the favorite of his mother. She turns out to be a bit of a trickster too. Eventually in a story many of you probably learned in Sunday school, I know I did, Esau, agree, Jacob agrees to feed Esau if he'll sell him his birthright. And then later to collect on that, as Isaac is dimmed to blindness, Jacob pretends to be Esau and receives the blessing. Esau is not pleased. I don't know if you'd be surprised by that. Esau gets mad. Jacob flees. He ends up finding a woman named Rachel whose father is Laban. Laban and Jacob spent 20 years competing with who can scam the other the most. So he agrees to, he wants to marry Rachel, and Laban says, you can marry her if you work for me for free for seven years, and so he does. This is, I'm just telling the story because it's funny. That night, it's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think it's funny, I don't know. Uh, and that night, and that night uh, he gets married, and then finally he gets married, and the next morning, he wakes up, and he finds that he has not married Rachel, but he married Leah, the older sister whose eyes do not quite sparkle as much. There's a lot of ideas what that possibly means. I don't know what happened that night that he didn't quite figure out who he had just married. I suspect it was quite a wedding party. Could be wrong. It's very dark. There was a veil involved. I don't know. So Laban says, well, you know, I forgot to mention, we don't marry old, younger sisters for older sisters, but if you work another seven years, I'll, give you, I'll throw in the second one. For, I'll throw in the second one. And he does, and he ends up married to both of them. Okay, two sisters is a little like two brothers. Doesn't go well. 
Eventually they flee, they steal Laban's gods, a few other things. They escape from Laban, they, they, they leave. Actually, they don't escape. They finally agree that the world would be better off if the two of them never saw each other again. And they leave part company. Jacob decides to go back to make peace with Esau. Jacob doesn't have much to recommend, I must admit, at this point in his life. But that's the story of people in the Bible. <laughs> they sometimes don't have a whole lot to recommend for them. But then God happens. I don't think we have a whole lot of evidence. Jacob was a, pretty, was a terribly devout worshiper of God. But then, in the chapter 35, well, chapter 35, Jacob returns. Well, it's a little before 35, I'm sorry. Let's go to 32, I'm sorry, 32. 32, Charlie, at 22, he, he crossed the river Jabbok. And that night, it says a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And there Jacob realized that he was in the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, everything changes. And Jacob and Esau meet, and they are surprisingly enough reconciled. And then in chapter 35, Jacob returns to the place called Bethel, Literally in Hebrew, the house of God. God had appeared to him when he fled from Esau, but I don't think it made a difference. But here he says, go back there. Put away all the foreign gods you've been worshiping while you're away and recommit yourself to the one true God. And he does. And God says to him, your name is Jacob, heel grabber. You shall no longer be called Jacob, heel grabber, but now your name shall be Israel. That's kind of funny, isn't it? That's the name of the whole family. That's the name of the whole country. That's the name of the whole people. And God gives this to a man who has schemed and scammed and struggled and grabbed his whole life long. But God gets in the way. And God makes a difference. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that interesting? that this is a story of people. And so then we go to the descendants of Esau in chapter 36, and then we go to the descendants of Genesis, and of, of, of Jacob, of Israel, and, his, and one of them is named Joseph. So, <laughs> never minding the fact that he, he definitely preferred Rachel, Jacob manages to have children with both of his wives and a few other people. But Rachel's his favorite, and eventually she's able to have kids. In fact, Rachel is horrible to Leah. The story says Rachel's horrible to Leah, and so Leah cries out to God, and God allows Leah to have children, but Rachel does not. So the oldest children are children with Leah and her mistresses and Rachel's mistress, and then Rachel is able to have children, and the oldest one is Joseph. Joseph, the oldest son with Jacob's favorite wife, becomes Jacob's favorite. And we know Jacob's favorite because he gets a coat with long sleeves, which is not very exciting. And so a, better, so a lot of people call it a coat of many colors. You've seen the play or the musical, right? So there's a, fam there's a coat uh, of many colors, or probably more likely a coat with long sleeves, but that sounds boring. Um, and, so, and, and of course, Joseph still has a little bit of his father in him, I suppose, or his mother parents in him and so Joseph is Joseph humble about this no 
He lords it over his brothers. He says, you know, I had a dream. There were, there, by the way, there are 11 brothers. There's 12 of them total. He says, look, I've had a dream. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, and all of your sheaves bowed down to that, bowed down to it. Some things are better left unsaid. Then he has another dream, and he says, look, I had another dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Some things really are better left unsaid. So his brothers kind of hated him. They eventually decide to kill him. And then they decide, why don't we have some mercy on him? We'll make some money instead. They sell him into slavery. He ends up a slave in the house of Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh. Potiphar's wife likes him a little too much. She accuses him of something that uh, is frankly reminiscent of some of what we hear in the news even today. And uh, Potiphar is not happy, has him thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, uh, Jacob, Joseph meets uh, some folks who were also in prison who worked for Pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker, and he interprets dreams for them. One of them will be, his head will be lifted up, and he will be returned to his position. The other one, his head will be lifted up and put on a pole. They're not too thrilled, and it happens. And he gets a reputation as a guy who can interpret dreams. And eventually the whole point of this is to say Joseph rises to power. God speaks to Joseph. God gives Joseph this ability to interpret dreams, but not for himself. It doesn't happen for himself, but it happens for the people. Because later Joseph learns there's going to be a famine. And so through shrewd planning, Joseph then stores up grain in, plenty, in years of plenty. And when, the, and when the famine comes, there's only one place you can get grain. And that's from Joseph in Egypt. Who's affected by this famine? Joseph's family back home. And so what happens? Later, they come to get, to, to get the grain that would save their life, and they find when they get it, they get it from Joseph. Anyway, long story short, Joseph ends up unveiling who he is, and they're, of course, absolutely terrified. This is a man who has the power of life and death in, their hand, in, in his hands. And so they say, well, he could kill us. And Joseph says, yes, I could kill you, <laughs> but I won't. In chapter 50, verse 20, one of the most famous verses of the Old Testament says, you intended to do me harm, but God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people. You see, God's plan is in action. And now at the end of Genesis, through these imperfect people that yet somehow God works through, they're in Egypt, far away from the land, but in a place where the people will grow into a nation. And so we go to the book of Exodus. There's been more movies made about this, so you probably have a little better handle on this story. The story of Exodus happens uh, when the people are in Egypt, but one day a Pharaoh comes, it's the Bible says, who does not know Joseph, does not know what Joseph did for Pharaoh. Because you see, when Joseph stored the food, he also, he made Pharaoh very wealthy. Pharaoh ended up using that famine to gain the lands of almost all the regions around them. And oh, by the way, the people in Egypt didn't starve to death. But a Pharaoh came who didn't know them and said, look, there's all these Israelites. God, they have just multiplied like rabbits in our midst. Soon there will be more of them than there are of us. And what will happen then? So he says, we've got to do something about these, these foreigners, these invaders. And so we're going to have to enslave them. 
and they do. I don't know how that works, but they enslave them. And they put them, uh, and then uh, amidst, the, and then, oh, actually they enslave them, and then they say, well, there's still too many of them. And so we'll just kill all the babies. And they says, okay, fine, we'll just kill all the male babies. You have, if one is born, throw it in the river. And one is born, and his name is Moses. Well, his name isn't Moses yet. And they threw him in the river, but in a boat. Right near the place where Pharaoh's daughter was going down to the river. And there she sees this baby that's obviously Hebrew. Because, you see, God gave them the sign of being a Hebrew, which is circumcision. That's a sign of Abram's covenant. I should have mentioned that a moment ago, a few minutes ago. And out of the water, Pharaoh's daughter brings this, uh, this boy and names him Moses because I have drawn him from the water. See, God's at work here. Because then Pharaoh's older, the Moses' older sister from his Hebrew family comes and says, Shall I find you a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse him? And the Pharaoh's daughter says, That sounds like a plan. <laughs> And so he goes and he returns Moses to his mother who nurses and they pay Moses' mother until Moses is old enough to go into the household of Pharaoh. And he learns Egyptian ways. He is trained as a prince. He is trained as a ruler. But then once upon it, then eventually it comes that Moses learns that he is really a Hebrew and he identifies with his people. He sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian he thinks he's hidden it. He's covered it up, but the story is out. So Moses flees to Midian. But then in Midian, where he is serving a priest, he's, he's connected with a priest, rather, he is, uh, who becomes his father-in-law, he then, God once again steps in. You see, God is building up a people. And so he says, oh, those people in Egypt, I have heard their cries. It's been 400 years. 400 years, it's, I think it's probably likely, people will disagree with me on this, and so, so you can have either of you, is it, I, I think it's likely the people had, for, had, had figured if, if God has forgotten about us, we're going to forget about God. But God has not forgotten. You see, God's covenant, God's promise, where I will be your God and you will be my people, God's covenant is still in force. And so God finds them, and through Moses, he calls him in a burning bush of all things. And said, Moses has every excuse in the world, but he goes, and he speaks to Moses, and there are nine plagues. Well, there are ten plagues, but we'll talk about nine. Nine plagues, and in those nine plagues, we see disaster wreaked upon, wrought rather, upon Egypt. But it's interesting, some say those nine plagues, they may have been symbolic, they may have been literal. But the point of those nine plagues is that they totally destabilized and figured, let these people go. But once again, God hardens the Pharaoh's heart and keeps bringing them back. But there is a tenth one that has no parallel in nature, no natural explanation, no reason it could have happened. And that is the death of all the firstborn. Except for God's people. And there he gives them something called the Passover, where he says, take a lamb and slaughter it. Take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it over the doorposts of your house. And the angel of death will come, will strike down 
all the firstborn except where the blood is over the door. They will be spared. They will be literally passed over. And have your meal so quickly. Have your shoes already on. Have your staff in your hand. Be ready to travel because tonight you are leaving bondage. And that night, the angel passes over and from the least to the Pharaoh's house, death reigns except where the blood is over the door. Do you see some parallels here? Are you catching some of this? And they flee. And they go. They cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh attempts to follow, but his officers are drowned. And then they are led out into the wilderness. God gives them manna in the desert, water from the rock. And then at chapter 19 of Exodus, the Israelites reach Mount Sinai, the great mountain. We don't actually know where it is, believe it or not. There are several locations people suspect. And then Moses goes up to God. The Lord, God, calls him from the mountain and says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Israel, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's the word, you shall be my treasured possessions out of all the people. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. See, that's the basis of the story of the covenant is once again that God's calling, God's deliverance does not for them, but for them to be bearers and priests to the world. You see, a priest exists as an intermediary. A priest, we don't have priests in the Methodist church, so it's kind of hard for us to think about it. The goal of a priest is to stand between God and humanity. You go to a priest in the ancient world and even today if you want them to speak to God for you. And a priest comes and they speak to you of God. And he says, of this world, you are going to be made a nation. You are going to be formed into a people that are priests for the world. They will intercede for the world to God and they will proclaim to the peoples of the world what it is, what God is like. Who is God? They will share that with the world. Indeed, that's the purpose of Israel, is to be that holy people. Holy is a word that simply means set apart. It doesn't mean best. It doesn't mean greatest. It doesn't mean uh, most morally upright. We've used that word holy to mean all those things. But it means set apart. You are set apart to show the world what God is like and what God's ways are like. And so what we see here, when we look at, in a moment, we're going to look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We're going to do a very quick pass by those. We talk about law and ritual. When we talk about those, we say that God has created these people to to bear to the world, to show the world what God is like. And he gives them the Ten Commandments and the law. Law is another word. Another great word of God. The word law, I think, would be better translated as the will of God. We think of law as rules, as don't do, do this, and that's true. 
How many of us, though, we talk about that we want to know the will of God, but we can't fathom the idea that God's will comes in law? But it does. He says, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my people. And so you're going to tell the world what I'm like. And so when I give you the law, I'm going to tell you exactly what kind of person, what kind of God I am. So he gives them the Ten Commandments, and you probably know them. That's where they come in the midst of this, in the formation of the people at Sinai. And it has things like, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol and worship it. Don't wrongfully use the name of God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Bear false witness. Do not covet. Those are ten simple rules to understand but not so simple to live out. Four of them are about your relationship with God. Six of them about your relationship with others. But they're really all about your relationship with God. I think of it this way. Say I steal something from George. I like his glasses. Say I steal his glasses from him. What's happened? Who have I sinned against? You'd be like, well, George, right? I stole his glasses. But what he's saying there is he's saying, when you steal from George, thanks for agreeing. He didn't agree. I just made him my example. <laughs> when I steal from George, when I am hurting George, I'm hurting someone made in the image of God. Someone who bears the image of God. And so when I sin against George, I am also sinning against the God who made him. See, that's the connection there. Uh, that, that, we, that, that sins against others. We think it's just a private matter. If I steal George, it's a private matter between me and George. He says, no, it is not a private matter. It is a matter between you and George, but also with me. Because I made George. I love George just as much as I love you. You see that? You're sinning against yourself, actually. And, well, sinning because, by, by, and, and of course, in the degradation of my own soul, right? Because if, if I steal and I get away with that, well, then next time I might steal something more valuable. And, and Because, you see, sin is not static. Sin is not something you can just do, right? Sin moves you. It changes you. You get away, you do one sin, and then suddenly you move further away from God. More and more, your soul degrades. But that's a story for another day, isn't it? <laughs> See, so why does God give them the, the law? And you read the next ones. I just read the headers in mind. The law of this, the law of restitution, social and religious laws, justice for all, sabbatical year and Sabbath, annual festivals. You're like, wow, that's a lot of laws. Why do you give laws? Why do you think God gives laws? Why does God give rules? Yeah, to give us a way to show obedience. How many of you gave, how many of you are parents? How many of you gave rules to your kids? Why'd you do that? Shirley, why'd you give rules to your kids? So they wouldn't drive you crazy. That's one word. To prevent chaos. That's another reason. To keep them safe. Why? You give rules to them because you love them. Because you tell them not to run out in the street. Why do you tell them not to run out in the street? Because you don't want them to get hit by a car, right? Most of the time, anyway. No, uh, <laughs> right. And so, but if you didn't, but 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 do many 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 people go around giving giving rules to their to kids that aren't theirs? Sometimes. 
Some do. Well, we're not going to talk about Charlie tonight. Uh, but, but, you don't, but, but what do you do? You care more about your kids following the rules. Why? Because you love them. I think that's why God gives them. God says, I'm going to show you what it's like to be my people, but I'm also going to give you that because I love you. That I'm going to show you the best way to live. You won't have to figure it out and like you're grabbing around in the darkness, but you can see in the light. What is the way to live? That's, that's the purpose of Exodus. That's why we have Deuteronomy. Because, because God loves his people. And God wants to show the people what is the best way to live. And God loves the world and wants to give the world an example of what it is like when you follow God's ways of justice. Uh, God's, ways, uh, God's ways of righteousness. And so you can see that God creates a people to say this is the light uh, to the nations. And so I wish I could then tell you, hey, from here it just really goes really well, just goes really swimmingly, and, and they stay there at Mount Sinai, but they're still a long way off. And so they're up there, and this is going really well, but then what happens? They say, well, Moses is dead. And so his brother Aaron, who's supposed to be his helper, says, give me all the jewelry we stole from the Egyptians on the way out. We'll melt it down. We'll make a calf. And they said, and they make this big golden calf. And they say, this is the calf. This is who brought us out of Egypt. God is not happy. Remember the first rule? Yeah, they broke that. The second rule, too. And so he tells Moses. And Moses comes down. This is so great. I don't know why I'm telling this. Because I need to talk about a couple other things before we run out of time. Uh, then Moses melts down the statue, grinds it into powder, and pours the powder into water and makes them all drink it. And the ones who are most in favor of the golden calf, they get violently ill. God's serious. But what does God do? Does God say, well, that's it. You all have totally made me angry. He says, no. He says, there they renew the covenant. God agrees. I will continue to be your God. And he says, I don't want to deal with this. But God then, Moses intercedes. God renew, and the people renew the covenant. And he says, I'm going to give you a place called the tabernacle, a place to worship me, a place where you can know where my presence is. You can come and meet with me. And they make, the, they make a tabernacle. And he makes it very specific. And that's what Leviticus is about. A lot of these rules. He says, you're going to be a different kind of nation. You're going to go into a place that I'm going to give you. There's going to be a lot of people there. And they're going to have their own rules on how to worship me. And I'm going to tell you right now, don't worship me like they worship their false gods. Worship me like this. And to the priests, don't do what the priests in Canaan do, but do what I tell you to do. That's what the rest of Exodus, that's what Leviticus is about. I'm not going to talk too much about Leviticus when we don't have a whole lot of time, but to tell you um, that, that I'm going to give you a little sneak preview just for those of you here on Sunday. Pastor Chris is going to preach about uh, Psalm 23, and then we're going to talk about Leviticus in worship. You're like, okay, I'm going to be gone after Psalm 23. <laughs> Chris has talked to me about this. It is going to be, just buckle up. It's going to be a good one. I'm telling you, this is exciting. Leviticus spends a tremendous amount of time talking about how do we properly worship God, including about sacrifices. I'm certainly not going to take too much away from what we're going to learn in church in a few weeks. 
Uh, but simply to say that why does God give sacrifices? It's because of that trouble, that problem of sin. I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I preached in the first service, but not in the second. I had a call a few years ago from a student at Stanford University, a strange call out of the blue. He said his grandmother had been a member of this church. I couldn't find any record of that. And they promised his grandmother he'd call the minister, and I think I was the only one in that day, and, and talk to them about why he should believe in God. This guy's a Ph.D. student in biology. He knows so much more about science than I do. And we talked a little bit about some of the classical arguments for God. And then finally, I asked him really simply, I said, well, I've got a question for you. What do you do with your sin? If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in anything greater than you, what do you do with your sin? What do you, he's like, well, he's like, uh, you know, it kind of gives you, it was on the phone, but you, you could tell he was confused. Sin, that's, that's a word you religious people use. Well, I said, okay, make it simple. What do you do with those times when you realize you are not the person God wants you to be? What do you do when you fall short? And he said, well, I just try hard to do better next time. And I want to ask is how's that working for you? Now, he's a Ph.D. student at Stanford. I said he probably hasn't experienced much failure in his life. It's all probably gone pretty well for him. But I think, what's going to happen when he's in his 30s and 40s and really bad things happen to him? That great job that he prepped for didn't work out. The marriage he put his life into fell apart. What happens when something really bad happens in his life? And he can't just do better and make it better. See, that's the human problem. How do we deal with this fallen condition of sin? You see, there in this, that is the answer what, he gives, what, what sacrifices are about. It says when you sin, or when you want to reach out and praise God, when you want to thank God for something good that happened you can't explain, you can give a sacrifice. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, it's different levels of it. The most significant is called the whole burnt offering. It also has another word for it, and that word is holocaust. You're like, that's a strange word. We're not going to use that word too much, but know where it came from. That means a sacrifice that is burnt so much, not even the bones remain. But not every sacrifice was like that. There were different levels, different animals, even grain. Some is burned. They burn the fat off and eat the meat. But it happens because... It's a sign. The sacrifice is a sign of God's forgiveness. The sacrifice is not the cause of the forgiveness, but it is a reminder that when we offer that, when we give that up, that sin has hurt something, but God forgives. And we know it's an extension of that covenant earlier because what happens is because we think of who provides the sacrifice. It's actually not us. Because who made the animals and the grain of the field? God did. And so God says, offer to me what is first mine as a sign that I forgive you. And the ultimate thing comes in Jesus Christ, that the one that God gives, God's only son, he is killed, he is utterly ruined, he is bleeding and dying it's a sign of the forgiveness of our sins once for all. Do you see now why Leviticus is important? 
It shows us that. It shows us this is a God who is holy, calls us to be holy people, and provides a way for us to be forgiven. And so let's look at the, and then Numbers. I wish I could tell you in Numbers the story is then they walked from Mount Sinai to Canaan and all was well. They didn't. They complained the whole way. They got there, they complained, we don't have food. But God gave you manna. We used to have good food back when we were slaves. They fed us well. As someone says here, it says, we remember the fish we used to eat for nothing. Except we, you know, we're slaves and all that. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And someone said, how bad do you have to be to, forget to be wishing you were eating garlic? <laughs> and they complain and God provides. And then they say, well, we can't stand all these vegetables. We need meat. And God provides little birds that crash into the ground and they can grab them at five feet high. And God provides. Eventually, they're ready to go, and they're at the promised land, and they send spies in, and there are spies that go for 40 days, and they come back, and they say, the land is really wonderful. They bring back this huge cluster of grapes and says, this is the fruit of that land. But the people are, large, are strong, the towns are fortified, very large. We saw some big, dangerous people there. Yeah, we can't do it. Caleb says, we can do it. Let's go. Let's do it. And Joshua says, sure. And the other men say, no, we can't. We will all die. So they bring an unfavorable resort. The people say, no, we can't do it. Let's go back to Egypt. Maybe they'll accept us as their slaves again. And God says, if, and Moses pleads for, the, for God not to abandon them. And God says, I will not abandon them. But only those two people who said we can do it, those are the only two people in the whole people that will enter Canaan. And so for 40 years, they wander in the desert. They wander in difficult times. And eventually, they receive oracles about the future, that they will make it, that they will conquer, and they will enter the promised land. But it won't happen yet. Not yet. Numbers ends with them just on the edge of the promised land. Deuteronomy is a story of the laws and reminders of what God has done and what God expects from them as they are his people in the promised land. They renew the covenant. God anoints Joshua to be Moses' successor reminds them of this law. And Moses gives his final blessings, and he dies. They're right there on the cusp. God has formed a people. They're about ready to enter the promised land. And that's where we'll begin next week. <laughs>